Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop Tarts. Beam, 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 beam. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We are both editors at Bust Magazine in Brooklyn, New York. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And our guest for this episode is one of America's most controversial performance artists and writers of all time ever, (laughs) since the history of the world. (laughs) Karen Finley started out performing feminist monologues full of vitriol and fury in the punk clubs of the Bay Area in the late 70s. By the 80s, she'd moved to New York, where she was a regular at legendary venues like Danceteria. And then in 1990, she became a household name as part of the NEA4, a group of four performance artists whose National Endowment for the Arts funding was revoked because conservative Senator Jesse Helms had a hissy fit about (laughs) decency. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court in 1998 in National Endowment of the Arts v. Finley. And Karen Finley became an icon of the struggle for free speech. She is the author of nine books, including Shock Treatment, The Reality Shows, and most recently, Grabbing Pussy, a psychosexual odyssey through the contemporary American political landscape. She's a professor of art and public policy at New York University, and she's a big fucking deal, people. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Karen Finley. Hey. Grabbing pussy has always been so hard. No pun intended. You're Karen fucking Finley. What words can you not say? The legendary pussy grabber. Undercover beaver snapper. Um, if you'll indulge me for just a moment, sometimes guests come on the show who were really formative to my identity as a feminist. And I like to just sort of go back personally for a moment to share with our listeners uh, how that those formative experiences came about. And you are one of those people. And I just wanted to share some of those recollections with you. When I was 15 years old in 1990, my family moved from New York to Virginia, and I was horrified. Um, But I made this really cool friend named Carlton who was obsessed with film, and he knew that I was just pining away from New York so much, and he found a VHS copy of Mondo, New York, which is an amazing movie that where like this girl goes to all these different performance art experiences in the Lower East Side, and it was so transformative to watch. You were in it, and Joey Arias, and Lydia, Lydia Lunch, and Veronica Vera, and Magnuson, who's a friend of the of Bust Magazine. You guys were all in it, and I felt like I had a really good formative education in what I was missing, <laughs> <laughs> and what I needed to get back to as soon as humanly possible. It was beyond thrilling, that, that movie, when I was 15, watching it. And then... Um, Three years later, I graduated high school. I went to college, and I was really struggling. I was I was studying theater, and I was very large and very shy and really having a hard time finding a way to get out of my shell. And I found this book at Tower Records in Boston called The Research Book of Angry Women. And again, <laughs> it was like... Understand me, people. This was now 1993. No internet, okay? If you (laughs) wanted to know about the things, you had to spend all day in Tower Records. You had to ask all your friends. You had to go to punk rock shows and punk rock clubs and get the flyers off the wall and find out. You couldn't find out any other way. It's true. People. And this one book, it was like the Rosetta Stone of fierce feminist creative activism. Karen Finley was in this book, and so many other people who went on to be in Bust Magazine, and I was so thrilled to have them, these women who were in this super important book to me, end up in Bust Magazine. We're talking about Diamanda Gallis. We're talking about Susie Bright, Annie Sprinkle, Carolee Schneeman, Bell Hooks, all of whom were in this book, all of whom ended up in Bust Magazine, and I still have it and cherish it to this very day. Uh, so now I'm going to actually get around to a question. <laughs> Did you have a sense in the 90s, like, uh, I was reading that book the same year that Bust Magazine was invented. Riot Girl was 
percolating and happening. Did you have a sense that there was a third wave feminist movement afoot and that you were an icon within it? (sighs) Uh, Well, first I want to just thank you for your, your continued practice in the belief in search for feminism and then just the work that you're doing here today. Aww. So it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And that feeling, I think what you're asking about is what that feeling, did you feel that something was, was happening? Um, I wouldn't necessarily understand that I was an icon, but I did have an alertness, a feeling that something was very, very exciting happening in the culture. And that feeling is a sense of agency, of of taking one's anger and wanting to change the culture, of having, uh, taking your practice, your resources, your friends, your enemies, and they're just having to go with you in what you what you believe in and what you want to be, you know, transforming the society for, you know, for feminism, feminist causes. So, yeah, I felt that. And there are other uh, women and uh, people around me that had this energy of really wanting to change, I think, gender dynamics or the way how uh, people were coded or restricted of the way how that they had to be presenting themselves by these certain um, gender requirements, you know, signifiers. And and uh, we, we were, you know, mad as hell and weren't going to take it anymore. Uh-huh. So it, it was a lot. It was, there, So, yes, I had a, a, a feeling that something was happening in the world. And were you seeing a change at all in the gender dynamics of the audiences that were coming to see you and that were responding to you? I think that at first, when I, I think I came out of or coming into a sense that when I was going to school that there were very few women teachers, Mm -hmm. right? That there were very few women uh, that were celebrated in, in all of the arts, really. It was just very, you know, they're always an exception. And so when I first started presenting my work, there are many people that were very, uh, very supportive, but I would get, at times, like men would be uh, throwing uh, cigarettes at me, or they would, you know, would be, ang- you know, be very angry or assaultive towards me. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I, I knew what that was like, because being uh, a woman, and you're used to it, that when you're walking down the street in an elevator, in an alley, in a family, at a job, of being diminished or being degraded. So that's, that's also propelled me and gave me the, the fuel and energy to combat that misogyny. Right on, right on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about performance art for a moment. Generally speaking... It's a tough sell, I think. I watch footage of you shouting into the audience, taking off your clothes, smearing your body with various substances. I feel electrified, I feel riveted. Um, But there's a deep discomfort that this kind of work elicits in a lot of people. Um, And it could, I'm sure it does, drive certain kinds of audiences away. Do you feel the need to reach reluctant audiences? Do you ever feel like you're preaching to the choir? How do you bridge the gap um, when people think that performance art is weird and they don't want someone to yell at them about abortion or AIDS or violence, um, but it might actually move the culture forward? I think that that's a question that many cultural businesses or you know, cultural people have to ask themselves every day about that relationship of your audience and who is your audience and when are you selling out? What are what are these spaces? And I'm sure that you ask that weekly at Bust. What mm-hmm, are these? Mm-hmm. What are the? You know, and we so we're asking that of ourselves all the time. Uh, I think that for for me and my you know for my my work is that I feel that my work 
lives and that it's best within its uniqueness, in its space of edginess, of its space of discomfort, of being a, a provocateur. I think that there are many artists that could be uh, could be in a sitcom or could reach more people. And I could possibly go and do that, but I'm interested in this bandwidth that I'm in that I feel you know, I feel that I don't, I, at least when I was starting to be creating the work, I wasn't feeling that I was seeing that enough. And so I was creating what I wanted, what I had a yearning for. Mm -hmm. So that is what, um, so that's, I think, the question that I ask myself. It's not so much about the, the audience, but thinking about where the, po the potency of the work is and where, the, where that work lays in terms of being honest uh, as, as artist, uh, as a historical recorder. Mm -hmm. And nudity has always been a hallmark of your work for so long. And I love the fact that in 1999, you both appeared in Playboy and you received the Ms. Magazine Woman of the Year Award in the same year. I think that's just such a perfect distillation of your impact on the culture. Um, but obviously your nudity means different things to different people. And I'm so curious what it means to you, especially now that in, you're in your 60s. What does it mean to you as a tool? I'm going to go back. These are very well thought out questions, <laughs> and I appreciate it. And I'm going to go back to the question that you're asking beforehand about you know, the audience and yeah. the audience reach. And I do think about the audience reach, but in probably ways that are different from the, the way that you are asking it, so that I am interested in the artist being able to have more of a, an audience, but on certain terms where it's not necessarily dumbing down, you know. So, and I did like, I did, uh, I did, pose in Playboy for se several reasons. One, the money, but two, also it was a strategy because after I lost my Supreme Court case, which was about decency uh, and federal support of the arts and decency, I felt that I would, I would distinguish myself in, in posing in something that was, for, that, that was sexual mm -hmm. and that I do look at it as you know, is sexual, is being erotica, as pornography. And so I wanted to participate in that, but I also wanted to participate it in terms of feminism, if you would say third wave feminism, is that the relationship to uh, being a feminist, but also believing in um, eroticism and in pornography. Mm -hmm. And so by participating in that, and I felt that, uh, the, uh, that Hugh Hefner and Playboy supported the ACLU, which supported my lawsuit. Mm -hmm. How could I not? I felt that it. I had to be. It was a. It was some. It was a. I had to be supporting that in a way for me and my. Um, uh, for me and the way how I was in looking at sexuality and the nude body, that I feel that there is a beauty myth sometimes that, that nudity or, or the female body is okay if it's nude when it's painted by a man in, and it's, you know, it's placed in, 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 for artistic reasons, but then the female form in other places aren't okay. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that's something that I, that's important to me, and I could probably going on in that if we were going to be talking, you know, about the female body and <laughs> agency. I know that when we interviewed Carolee Schneeman, really not that long ago, I think it was last year, yeah, it wasn't, or the year before. before. She she also was very, um, she was very articulate in the way that she was talking about how people were so offended by her using her own naked body, whereas if men were to be painting her or taking photographs of her naked, then they would have been fine right. with it. Exactly, exactly, yes. And I would, uh, 
Carolee Steeman was a very, very important person to me in my practice, and and I, I build, or I'm in discourse in what, in the art and the thinking that she uh, started and contributed so much to the art world. So I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> I like where it's going. I like where it's going anyway. You've been facing off against U.S. politicians for decades. And your latest book, Grabbing Pussy, which I highly recommend, is a scathing takedown of our current administration. Um, before we go on to talk about it, I was wondering if you would mind reading a selection from the book. Sure, yes. You can choose whichever one you like. Grabbing Pussy. Grab them by the pussy, you can do anything. Grabbing pussy has always been so hard, no pun intended. Grabbing pussy is a challenge even for those who live in one. To hold on to labia, to get your pinky hooked on clitoris, to let your claws hold on to the mane. Pray tell or pray tell, pussy tell me, please let me hang on your grace. Grabbing pussy has the consequences of digging deep into the interior clutching canal of wetness, the folding petals of wonderment that enclose onto the unseen. Grab them by the pussy, grab her like a bitch. Grab, let me grab pussy. Physically, hold on to pussy to psychically navigate. With all my physical presence has to offer, grabbing the soft tissue surrounding the entrance of desire. I won't be invited and need to force myself in. My own primal scream, my memory birth. Let me grab pussy. Grabbing childlike hands, fingers into cookie jars. Cold pizza, go grab a slice. A steak well done with ketchup. Grab her, grab her, grab her. My pussy is a cup of coffee in this cold morning without you. Grab me some pussy, that angry cat. Make her purr, lie and roar. A pussy. I'm one angry cat. Volva victorious licious. Very vulva, very berry, very, very berry, vulva. She said he's a pussy. I'm the pussy. Call me a shiver quiver. Cunt angry. Vag, jag, lag, rag, tag, hag, bag, gag, nag, sag, brag, flag, drag, anything all the think I'm a fag. Oh, pussy. I need you so, for without you I have nothing to fear and destroy, nothing to navigate my withered self. Help me, pussy! Help me, pussy! Be a good puss! And help me grow to expand my vocabulary. Words, image, here you go! My ABCs of pussy! Apple pie, abalone, angelfish, box bottom bravo, conch shell, cooby, cubbyhole, cooch cha cha cha. Delight, doghouse, danger, ditch dog, electric eel, elevator shaft, fresh fish, folded fins, glorious garage, gallivanter goo, hamburger helper, heaven handle, ice cream soft serve time, jamming jelly, jewelry box, kangaroo pouch, kitchen mitt mixer, lamb lick locket, mama, I'm home, milk and honey, nookie, Nancy, best nest, oh my God, oh my goddess, pen holder. Queen's Beehive, River She Keeps, Squeeze Box, Taco Mouth, Undercover Beaver Snapper, Volvo Lips, Wet Whore Nurse, Triple X. Why? Because it feels good. Time to sleep after I lose myself in you. Whoa. I'm freaking out. <laughs> that was so good. Thank you so much for doing that. My pleasure. So the book. The pleasure's all pussy. <laughs> the the a vaginal voyage. Book has a lot of vaginal voyages, but and anal voyages, and and generally it portrays the president as a shit smeared, dirty, stupid infantile closeted emotional basket case i see no lie 
<laughs> I wonder how much of this imagery that you evoke is anger and how much is honest conjecture about who you think he really is under his gross comb over. I think both. I, uh, I'm angry about, about it and wanting to be expressing that anger of the uh, misogyny, but not just with Trump, but many people surrounding. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the, the misogyny and the racism and sexism in the, in the culture. Mm -hmm. And do I feel that he's that way? Yes, I do. I do feel that he is that um, diabolical, cruel, narcissistic, and, um, you know, fu fucked up. And I think that there is a is that combination of uh, not just uh, cr you know a cruel um, idiot, but that there is a you know there's a real there's a real meanness and there's a uh, a pathology and uh, mm -hmm. psychic pa pathology. You've been you've been critical about many presidents in your work in the past. From your perspective, is this the absolute worst president we've ever had in the history of our country, or am I just seeing it that way? I think that, no, I think that we've had other horrible uh, presidents. I mean, of course. I mean, Reagan, you know, like I'm really thinking about how wonderful the Reagan years were. Uh, oh, those were great years, you know, when he ignored AIDS for seven years. I mean, and... Um, and, you know, so I can go, th or, you know, going through uh, with presidents um, who have Asian uh, Exclusion Act, you know, there's so many presidents that have just been so uh, evil, you know, even thinking about Thomas Jefferson, I mean, was that, uh, that were mm -hmm. those the, the good old days? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. this kind of sense of, uh, of presidents um, having, uh, Slaves and their um, their just audacity and cruelty and inhumanity. So I think that this idea of looking at Trump as the only bad person is not the way to be looking at it. And I don't look at him in that way. Or and I think that that's a binary to be looking at a person, and that's even going towards like a capitalism that he has to be the best. The best at being the, the worst. worst, you know, <laughs> and we have to give him that award, and we have to have these discussions. How bad is he? How bad is? He? How horrible is he? Um, but it's so I, I I'm looking over an entire you know system. I think it's you know it's systemic racism and it's systemic um, sexism, and he's speaking out what I think that I think that uh, a part in my book is that I'm also looking at neoliberalism and whiteness and that this magical, you know, ness or just I think that how so many uh, white liberals feel like they're so panicked and they can't believe that this is happening and, you know, they're just so upset and so put out and that they have this sense of discomfort um, and that I, f I find that to be offensive. You know, this I idea mm -hmm. of how, you know, uh, um, especially civil, oh, I'm s I can't take it. I can't take it. I can't believe it anymore. No. Like, as if, like, this hasn't ever happened before. Oh, I, I'm never going to get out of bed. He's sense yeah. and then I, I think I speak about it, it too about you know people then they check out you know it's like oh and then the weekend they're getting to their weekend house so they're going to go to their farmer's market and you know the the consumerism that uh, uh, that relates towards self-care and within beauty and some things I think even talk about in bust but I see it related mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. see that there's ways that Ivanka and her constantly grooming, and you see this uh, 
the way how the women in the Trump family is portrayed in the Constance grooming for this Barbie doll look mm -hmm. is so offensive, mm -hmm. but yet there are parts of it that's within the culture that you see uh, that, that we live in and that we're um, signing up for or that you know, we're having conversations with or that we, we buy into. So those are, that's also what I want for us to do in the book too, is to look at, to, to look beyond, um, is to look at liberalism mm -hmm. as well and mm -hmm. to look at Hillary Clinton and the way that, uh, and when you're talking about first, second, third feminism is that she being older, I just was disgusted at the way that when Trump was hoovering over her body during the debate, that yeah. she just didn't turn around and she just didn't say, you know, will you get out of my fucking face? You know, we just shut the f up. You know, just get out of here. And never could do that. And that docility, that obedience, and everyone saying, oh, that that obedience and that's something that she learned. Well. That isn't for now, and I felt that at that moment, um, I felt her pain, but that I she didn't have the courage to just look mm -hmm. up and say, "Get out of my fucking face." I don't know if I could say yes. That. <laughs> yeah, but you, you know that kind of and uh, what is <laughs> that part? <laughs> when are these times that what would say? You just debated whether you could say fuck after oh, all I know. those words. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's an art and this in conversation. <laughs> You're so Karen sad. fucking Finley. What words can you not say? <laughs> well, there are certain some words that I don't say, and it's and, and I I think about the words that I'm saying um, when I'm in different environments. So that when I'm in an educational environments, I I sometimes even in educational environments aren't always even showing my my work or presenting it in a way, or I'm not using, I, I will be introducing it. I don't, I feel that in certain environments in education, it is, free speech isn't something like you just say anything right. at any time, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm conscious of when I say, uh, when I'm, when I'm saying, people probably wouldn't think this of me, and I am, uh, for the First Amendment, but I, I am conscious of thinking about when people can be saying things and where are the places and about, uh, you know, hate speech and mm -hmm. trauma, you know? Yes. So that's something that I feel about, uh, about um, I feel about that very strong. Do you think that hate speech should be legislated? Well, I f there are there are certain um, legislation with hate speech. There are certain times right, that saying that harassment har and harassment at some points that if it's re uh, being said over and over again or within educational spaces. But I feel I I would have to. I think that that's I I, I would love to be in that co conversation of talking about that. But I certainly feel that um, that when work is art, but I think that when a, I, I, okay, this is an example. In the workplace, for example, you can't have, um, like I posed in Playboy, but you couldn't be having at the workplace a, a, uh, a pull, a, a, a full, uh, what is it, a pit up from Playboy. You know, you couldn't have the center fold up in the, in the workplace. And that could be considered speech, but no, you can't be doing that. So those types of situations in work or in your educational environments and places like that for uh, sexual harassment and for um, and uh, race and identity and, uh, and religion that I, yeah. I, I feel that that has to be protected. The workshop, right? <laughs> 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 you know, it's interesting. Like the work uh, in the work uh, in the workplace, and then you can be defining where what is your workplace. You know, yeah. and I think that that could even go is, for example, where you live. Let's say where you live, and someone is then every time you're coming into your house, say, you know, certain things like that. So that is. Uh, that people probably wouldn't 
know that about me, but that's something that I believe in. I'm surprised, and I also agree. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about you more as an educator. Um, I actually experienced you as an educator for a brief time just before 9-11. It was like weeks before 9-11. You were teaching like a three-day, two or three-day workshop at the Flea, and it was on performance art. And I was so thrilled. It, it was just a few days, and there was like maybe a dozen students. And um, I was thrilled to just be there. And um, there were some like real, like aspiring performance artists there. I just wanted to learn and read and be around. But I also um, still had terrible stage fright. And so... Um, my final performance art project, I wrote a piece and I recorded it on my boombox. And then I brought my boombox into the room and I pressed play and I pretended that I was asleep the whole time. And I wrote a piece about dreams that I was having. And then I was like rolling around like, ugh, I'm having a bad dream. But then the boombox was doing the piece for me because I had stage fright and I knew I wouldn't be able to get it out. And very rightly so, you said that it was a cop-out and that it wasn't, <laughs> that uh, the assignment was to do the piece, not record the piece and lay on the floor. But you also said that you thought my writing was very good and I was so um, buoyed by that affirmation from you. I took it with me for the rest of my life. Um, but I wonder about, you know, that's just one example of you teaching something that could be potentially very emotional. Um, and I'm wondering about the other anxieties that you confront as an educator when some of the topics that you're touching on are so personal for your students. How, like, what are the anxieties that you're encountering in young feminists and how do you handle them as an educator? These are, <laughs> these <laughs> questions, it's not just like thinking. Um, I could ask you how you got Do you like, dot, you know, do you like. Oh my goodness. All right. Uh, that's, a, it's actually, I find this to be a very beautiful, poignant question. It's a beautiful question, right, to be asking about how does one, teach and engage in emotional issues that they themselves share in. I think that that is why I, why I love the classroom or I love the students is because it's a process and it's, the, it's very humane and the physicality of it. And I love the physicality of it, of being in a room with other people and engaging and that's, Earlier in your uh, in our segment here, you were sp speaking about how you went to find the book that I was in in Angry Women uh -huh. and the struggle, the physicality of it, that you actually had to go find the book and you had to speak to people and you had to go to clubs. And that is so joyful, too, that you remember the physicality of acquiring knowledge. And... I like that too. I like that of being in the room with my students and feeling the struggle and the challenges and the emotionality. And right now, actually, today I was talking about with a student and we're talk about about the feeling of when you're performing and you don't necessarily feel that you're right in the work, but what's that relationship like? How, what's the when you're not feeling it, but it's coming off what? Does that, what does that have to do with that work? What's that relationship? So I, I just I think because I just love it and I love the process and um, I feel dedicated to it and it's hard. It's it's hard to do it, but um, I think that teaching or being in in situations where you're learning with people that teachers and your colleagues sometimes can be more of a family than your family. What they don't, they can understand you and teach you things that sometimes your parents or people can't. Mm -hmm. And there, I feel that, I feel like it's a sacred 
spiritual bond that you have within those moments. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's, I would say that it's hard, but that I try with my students to have understand of the, the seriousness and the intimacy. I love the intimacy. I mean, this is an intimate exchange right now. Uh, so that is what I, th- I don't have an, a final answer for it like Jeopardy, but <laughs> it's a life process. <laughs> I think about you sometimes in relation to the Me Too movement. I feel like performance artists like the ones that I've mentioned before were doing the work of the hashtag Me Too movement before the rest of us were able to do it. Before the culture at large was empowered to say, this happened to me. Um, performance artists like yourself were out there on stage saying, this is happening to all of us for so long until the culture finally caught up and we started doing it for ourselves. So I wonder what the Me Too movement looks like and feels like and sounds like for you, who were 30, 40 years ahead of us out in the world speaking this truth. Well, there are many women, many people that were speaking out. I think that in my work, what was more specific is the fact that I was speaking out and speaking not in abstract terms, but that I was speaking about sexual violence, sexual oppression, and giving examples, and um, abortion, you know, reproductive rights, the body. And I, it, it feels, it feels, I would say it feels good, because to think that the Me Too, um, the Me Too, if you want to say generation or Me Too time era that we're living in, it isn't one of feeling good because it's all of this is becoming aware. But I do think that there's an energy or a strength with the younger generation that it's, it's building. It's building. It's not. You can't think about these movements of being just ten years or twenty years. You know, there sometimes these. You know, the movement can take. 100 years, 20, 40 years, so we're making progress, and I, I feel uh, blessed that in my lifetime I'm seeing, um, I'm seeing women in Congress, I'm seeing women in the Senate, I'm seeing women speaking up and out, and I'm seeing women now uh, who are ready and they're not going to take it, their space uh, happening, and I think many of the movements work in conjunction with each other, right? So that with uh, Black Lives Matter has had a relationship with also um, speaking out in the Me Too movement and also to be thinking of the founder of the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. Right? So that um, it's, a, it's a movement that is happening of speaking out and... Uh, and continuing to speak out. And uh, if I don't have to be making work that in that way, and I could just be doing paintings of clouds, <laughs> uh, God bless America. <laughs> I'm waiting for that day. It's not here yet. Right. <laughs> How has your perception of yourself as a feminist and your own personal feminism evolved over time over the course of your career these days our discussions of feminism are a lot more about breaking through the gender binary about intersectional feminism much more than like when bust started in 1993 how has your personal feminism changed over the course of your career i've become I think in some ways more patient, but then less patient. Um, So more patient in understanding that movements and can take years, and you just have to do one step at a time. But then less patient when I'm seeing you know assholes and just want to be telling you know (laughs) you know just being direct, being direct, and not 
wanting no. to necessarily having to be navigating um, the uh, the expect the gender expectation um, that is put on me, you know, and so I have less. So that's what I'm. Th those are the differences. Uh -huh. Uh, and being aware of it and actually being aware more and looking back at um, that I f when I was young when I was younger that I would not have even thought of complaining there are certain situations that you couldn't even complain and you had to just be silent about it and you had to be state be secret about it uh -huh. and that I could only speak about it in artwork mm. but not necessarily speaking in it in a space where there would be a court of law or taking action. It would only be able to be in an artwork. And you're talking about being harassed in harassed, sexual violence, um, abuse, you know, just in the just daily living. Yeah. Da you know, uh, and you, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't have thought twice at that I just basically uh, lived with it and but I put it in my artwork but th that is still surprising to me to be thinking of that I did not feel that I could even speak up or out about it you know about you just learned to live with it and it was just sort of a no known between women that you just didn't say anything so but at the same time you see that when people speak out, that's why the courageous ones do, it's important. Um, does that answer it a little bit or yes, speak to Yes, it? <laughs> I know that it's, it's a big question, it does, it does answer it. Uh, I thought this was so funny. <laughs> In 2014, you were leading 13-step uh, meetings for people whose lives had become unmanageable because of art. Uh, has art made your life unmanageable, and what is the solution? <laughs> I still run or work with the collective, and we have a meeting called Artists Anonymous, and we were meeting this year, uh, this winter and spring. Our meetings just ended. We'll start up again. But we have 13 steps, and the first step is, you know, you admit that you're uh, addicted, you know, powerless over art <laughs> and admit that you're addicted to art and uh, but we it's it is to it's living in, as an artist and living in a capitalist society and living in the, you know the expectations of that our, our life and our art can get away from us and we have to start to look at what What's meaningful? What's the purpose? And how it came about is that for me, after I lost the NEA case with the other three artists, that my life changed because my economy and the censorship changed the art market for me and my ability of, to perform uh, or have access as I did before. For example, I had a show at the Whitney that that was canceled. So certain things that would have been important for a marketplace, an economy. And I became bitter and I was forlorn. I lost a sense, you know, my sense of humor and I had to find the joy in art again and realize that that the art or the art, art making in myself was not defined by the outside forces or by the, you know, my soul or my heart as an artist or as a human, that could, where that was and where that located was. So that's how I decided to start having these meetings. Mm -hmm. But they're fun, you know, they're funny too. So we have places, we have prompts, and we have speakers, and so that's what, what's come about. And we have a website for it, so if anyone wants to look at it, it's called Artists Anonymous. So Artists Anonymous, yeah. I, it's interesting that you say bitter and forlorn. I feel like as a professional feminist, which I guess you could say Callie and I are, this this administration's really taking an emotional toll on me. I It's very hard not to get bitter and forlorn, especially when feminism and talking about these issues is my literal job. Um. How do creative uh, go-getter feminists 
like us stave off the bitterness and the forlorn feelings to to do what you've done for so many people for so many years how do we make it through to the other side you do it together and you have uh, physical contact with people yeah I think it's important sometimes not to always be on the internet I think it's important to have human contact and look in look into people's eyes take a moment go going outside struggling getting your feeling your body and to be thinking about um, what you have and what you can do with what you have and that's what you do what you and what you have what you can do with what you have and and Spaces like in this room, these are spaces of resistance. So we have to contribute in small ways instead of having this feeling of disempowerment with the web and the internet and the millions of people, but starting in small spaces of resistance, that's, that's where it happens. And it can be happening one poem at a time. And you know, you know, there's many places, spaces of resistance that have happened. Whether it's going to be a, a gospel song that you know you're thinking, okay, what's this one song that has big major things? What is this one painting that does? What is this one piece of music? And that is how change happens. And before we let you go, we have to ask all of our guests who come through here, what you're watching. And when I say what you're watching, it's a broad question. What pop culture are you consuming? Books movies, music, television, music videos, anything that you are consuming pop culturally, we want to know about it because it is probably cool. I just finished reading a book by a Chicago author called um, Dugan's Bistro and the Bearded Lady. And it is about a gay club in sort of the 70s 80s and a kind uh, and a performer who was I would say kind of he was a uh, you know was bearded and then dressed very f feminine mm -hmm. and drag but was really before their time and having this mixture of sort of like from the fairies like and the caucus yes and hibiscus yes and just about about how th the choices that they made and at that time and sort of uh, and how important that was because I was thinking about how that movement had such an impact on me and my my artwork the idea that having so many gay clubs and the that era sort of disco era laid a great a groundwork out for for um. feminist perform performers like myself because that the way that I expressed my my gender was breaking taboos but that it would be allowed in that space so I was really enjoying reading that awesome thank you so much for coming thank you it's uh, it's uh, it's been a thrill Lovely. to have you here and you're such an inspiration and thank you for all the things that you do for all the women in the whole world <laughs> thank you <laughs> When we come back, I'm going to ask Callie, and she's going to ask me, what, what you, you watching? watching? Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. And we're back. Hello. Callie, that was so thrilling. That was lovely. That was intense. She's so thoughtful. Karen Finley is the best. I loved it. And she was here. Legendary, legendary, legendary. Legend. All right, let's. <laughs> legendary pussy grabber. Yeah. It was wonderful. And now it's just you and I. Just the two of us. 
I'm gazing into the limpid pools of your eyes, and I want to know, Callie, what you watching? Well, 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 well. Over the weekend, I went to see the Super Chief Sarah Satkin bodysuits exhibit. And if you email Super Chief Gallery ahead of time, they let you try on the suits, which was insane. So we're talking about an artist who makes suits of different people's bodies. and they are so realistic. There's, like, nipple hairs and the little, like, bumps around the edge of the areola. It's, like, the paint shadowing is insane. I saw you on Facebook in a masculine torso and you're – your small penis was emerging from beneath yes. it, and I knew that you were not wearing your own body, but in fact, <laughs> an artistic <laughs> rendering of someone else's. And also, before that, there's like a little waiting room, and you try on a little black outfit, like to keep. I guess so your clothes don't like rip the suit. Oh, I see. And stuff, but it was in between two ferns. So me and Camilla spent the time having a fake talk show. Nice. That was fun. Um, then I went to go see the Beastie Boys story. So the Beastie Boys were live on stage mm-hmm. presenting their new book about themselves. Yes. And it was like a bunch of photos and video in the background. It was hilarious. It Where was, was it? What was journey. the venue? Um, was this, I think this was at King's Theater. Oh, in, Bro- in Brooklyn? Yeah. So beautiful. It's so gorgeous. But you have to put your phone in phone jail. You I know. know. They always lock up your phone. And uh, they, they were taping it for something. So you couldn't leave in between during the thing at all and i w- had the period poops so that was kind of a that a is shit. terrible when you are in a place where it is not appropriate to get up and leave oh my god there was a moment during like the first part where i seriously thought that i was gonna have to get up and go and i was like and I then people would be like do you remember that beastie boys show when that one girl pooped her pants and everyone <laughs> would be, it would be like that black eyed peas show when Fergie peed her pants (laughs) well this show was really good and also I really liked the way they addressed some of like the sexism and problems in the past like they talked about how Russell Simmons was so important to the beginning of starting the band because they were first signed to Def Jam but they said we also know he's not a great person now but back then we didn't know you know yeah talk about separating the art from the artist yeah but i mean you can't leave him out of his of the the story of how the beastie boys happened because he was such an integral part there's no way to do it and then he talked about on the song girls and how they they really they were like trying to write a song making fun of party boy anthems a parody that became the thing that they were parodying like the man show apparently i did not realize that was supposed to be a that's what they've said, but I don't know if I believe them because what whatever happened in the conception to it, the way it actually came out on air, got really lost on that trampoline. Yeah, um, but so somebody inter was asking um, the other Adam, not not the one that has passed away. Um, they called him a hypocrite for talking about feminism sometime down the line and he was like i'd rather be a hypocrite than someone that never changed and i was like yeah or i'd rather yeah and i was like that's the best response he is life partners with the queen of feminism what do you expect i am sure she gave some notes because they addressed some of the things so well and you know i'm all about people just trying to fucking change we can't just let them all sit around being assholes and then they were talking there's a lot of really good stuff about adam yak i think that's how you say his last name um and he was a big pranking person and also i feel like he's would be my like kindred beastie boy because he also has a room full of costumes and drawers of mustaches oh just like you yeah we have a lot in common so uh, that is a must watch i don't know when it's coming out um but it was amazing it was such a great voyage um i watched crazy ex-girlfriend the ending was uh it was very predictable debbie or debbie solar that in her chief here she predicted that ending pretty much spot on i got did you watch any of this no i got a little bit repetitive because i mean not that it wasn't always about her being crazy in love relationships but it was just like which guy is she gonna choose which guy is she gonna choose and it was so unrealistic that somebody has three like not shitty dudes on their ass. Yeah. And and that the rich guy became such a good person. Not that rich people can't become good people, but I found it all very tedious. But I wanted to see how it ended. 
It was bleh. Mm. You are bleh. Um, Sabrina is back. Sabrina is back. I am loving it. Have you watched the new I season? I have watched the first either two or three episodes of the new season. I just, every visual element of it is just for me. I understand that the stories are silly. I'm living for all the lamps. The oh lamps my God, so many like good lamps. Best. So many good light fixtures. I want whoever is the set designer for Sabrina to do my entire apartment. Agreed. There's a really good episode that's about tarot cards. But all in all, I found it not at that exciting as the first season. It's silly but delightful. It's silly and I but love delightful. looking at it. I'm going to hang on to it, though. Um... I went to this little ditty called the 8th Annual Brisket King NYC with my man, Jimmy Carbone. He's from Jimmy's number 43, and he is like the king of pork events. But brisket is beef, is it not? There's pork brisket, there's beef brisket. I have no idea, because I consider brisket a quintessentially Jewish food, and so I wouldn't even, I would never even consider trafe brisket. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but... Maybe maybe I was eating only beef all night. I'm gonna I'm gonna pork. say you probably were eating only beef all night, but I'm fine with it. He also does this event called Pig Island, which is definitely pork. That's trafe <laughs> to the max. Um, but he's got a Rib King event coming up on May 30th, which I also hope to attend. And it, it's just like all these little stations, and then these like master chefs make these little tasty things and then you vote for whoever is the best. I love it when food becomes pop culture. I, I, I love every second of this event. I li- live for these. I remember at the last Pig Island, I think it was the Pig Island or maybe it was a different food event. I ate so much food and then I fell asleep and took a nap on the grass and they thought I died and they called an ambulance. Yes, someone called 911 because you were passed out in a food coma on the grass. And then I casually got up from the nap and sat at the table. And I was like, what are the paramedics here and for? And they were like, you, girl. Camilla you. Was dying. He was like, they call them on you. That's what I call a food coma. Uh, uh, and I also, of course, I watched Game of Thrones. You're the throny. Now, I watched a hour-long recap that went through all the seasons. Oh, my God. It was just an hour, though, but, man, there's so many characters. I was just sitting there with Camilla, like, I still don't know what's happening. Like, who was this guy? Who are these people? But I remembered enough to fill in some of the holes. But then we watched the last episode, and in the last episode, it was all about the fucking zombie people White people walkers. Coming at them. Yeah. yeah, and there's, like, a zombie dragon, and I'm living for it. And then none of that happened in, this, in, the, in the, the new episode. It's... They just left that just hanging. Mm. I can only presume that it will return. I would assume they're fucking knocked down a whole fucking wall, but I was a little disappointed because I was expecting immediate slaughter. I did not get what I wanted. And that is what I have been watching. Nice. And what have you been watching? Thank you for asking. I'm going to launch into something fairly nerdy. And I want you to follow me on this. So the mayor's office here in New York City of media and entertainment has this program that they've been doing for the last few years called One Book, One New York, where they have posters on the subway where they're like, we think everybody in New York should read the same novel together. And it's not actually not always a novel. Um, but we think that everybody in New York should read the same book and discuss it. It's like a book club. For the whole transit system. (laughs) And what they do is they choose, like a bunch of cool-ass librarians choose five books that they think are worthy for everybody on the subway to read. And then you vote online. Um, And so this week I very excitedly voted for my favorite, and I'll tell you what it was. Um, And then they announce it on May 3rd which book is the one book, one New York. And then there's a hashtag, hashtag one book NY. And then you can go online and have discussions with uh, your fellow New Yorkers about the book that everyone's reading. And then at libraries, they'll have like author talks with the author of the book that everybody's reading. And it encourages communal subway reading. And I'm here for it. So the nominees (laughs) this year are um, the first book is called A Place for Us by Fatima Farheen Mirza. Oh, I want to say all five nominees this year are women. Yes. 
Yes, that's yes, awesome. Yes, queen. That is amazing. And it's, a, it's a diverse group, and they all look quite good. Uh, a Place for Us by Fatima Farheen Mirza. I'm skipping this book because it's about a big Indian wedding, and I'm allergic to weddings, so I'm not going to read it. But it does look good. Second one is called Nilda by Nicolasa Moore, and it is about a Puerto Rican girl coming of age in the Bronx during World War II. So I'm guessing that it's kind of like a tree grows in Brooklyn, but Puerto Rican. And I have not read it, but I do have, I am on a waiting list for it at the New York Public Library. Um, the third book, spoiler alert, this is the book that I voted for. I've already read. It is Just Kids by Patti Smith. This is one of my oh, favorite yes. books of all time. It's Patti Smith's memoir about her life as an artist in the 60s and 70s in New York City with Robert Maplethorpe. Um, I love that they nominated that. I know. It is literally one of my favorite books of all time. Obviously, I was going to vote for it. Patti Smith is the fucking best. <laughs> and yeah, I voted for it, but I don't need to read it during one book, one New York, because I have already read it. You already read it. And I have two copies in my house right now. <laughs> um, the third, no, the fourth nominee is this book that I am also on a waiting list for at the New York Public Library called Free Food for Millionaires by Min Jin Lee. And it is about a Korean woman from Queens who is obsessed with the lifestyles of Manhattan's rich and famous. Ooh. It's very easy to do in this. This is a very opulent city. Truth. And then finally, the, the fifth book is called Another Brooklyn by Jacqueline Woodson. And... Um, I actually found this book on audio at the New York Public Library, and so I listened to it in its entirety last week, and I thought oh. it was great. Um, it's about four young black women supporting each other through adolescence in 1970s Bushwick, and it's, awesome. a, it's sort of a novella. It's short, it's lyrical, it's poignant, it's about female friendship, with which I am obsessed, <laughs> and it's... It's a great book. So, great. yeah, it's like even if you don't participate in one book, One New York, this carefully curated list of nominees by New York librarians is a great reading list to have as we go into yeah. the warm weather reading season. Ooh. So that's what I've been watching. And by watching, I be mean reading. And by reading, I mean listening to you on my headphones. <laughs> uh, yeah, Another Brooklyn by Jacqueline Woodson. Recommend it. And of course, Just Kids by Patti Smith. Everyone in the entire world should read that book. On the television, um, mm -hmm. FX has What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, yes, The Shadows. I'm, I'm so loving it. tickled by this show. It's based on the movie of the same name that was written by New Zealanders. You, you may recall Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords. He is like a writer on this show. And... Taika Waititi is his his creative partner on this enterprise. And what we do in the shadows is <laughs> about a sort of a little nest of vampires who are hanging out in Staten Island mm -hmm. and their vampire boss shows up to check up on them. And apparently they've been hanging out in Staten Island for hundreds of years and they were supposed to take over the new world, but they just like didn't <laughs> and so like their bosses are being like yeah get snap to it you got to take over the new world and they don't have any idea how to even do it like in the most recent episode i watched they had to go to a staten island city council meeting and <laughs> they were yeah. sitting oh my god it's like so deadpan and so goth and so funny and one of the members of the vampire clan is just like this regular dude who's a psychic vampire yeah. who just yes, he, I think is the best. bores the shit out of everyone and like and sucks all their energy he away. Met another one. Was it yeah. the same episode? Oh my he God. He met a woman played by Vanessa Bear, I believe. It's an energy sucker. Oh it's God. so good. That's the best part of it. And Beanie great. Feldstein in it is yes, in it as is a awesome. young college LARPer <laughs> <laughs> who, uh, obviously is a virgin because she's a LARPer and so she's very attractive to the nest of vampires. Um, it, it's so funny. It's amazing. I'm here for it. 
I've also been watching a lot of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I know that you were watching this before I was. Oh, uh, yeah. You haven't Still. seen it yet. It's the, good, right? The thing about the show that I think I like the most is that sort of the real issue at the heart of it is that there's this woman who's very, very talented at a time when the dominant status quo did not want women to be talented. Women were around simply to be support staff in their families, at their jobs, like in their whatever they were doing in life, they were there to support the men around them to be the best that they could be. And the fact that this woman is so superlative, like she can't even help it, even when she tries to tone it down because her husband is so insecure around her. Like she can't tone it down. She's just, she's just uh, too much of a light. Yeah. Her light is too yep. bright. And true. so I, I think that it is um, important to have a show with that, with that struggle in it. Even though women are allowed to uh, be the main characters in their own life stories now in a way that they weren't back then, there's still a lot of pressure on women to be the support staff in the world yeah that's true for sure um so yeah i i'm liking marvelous mrs Maisel very much i finally finished watching shrill i waited a long time to finish it because i just didn't want it to be over dying i really i love it so much and it was just renewed for season two bring me more shrill i love it i feel very affirmed by seeing ad bryant mostly naked having sex on that show I feel affirmed. <laughs> Thank you, A.D. Bryant, for disrobing for my fat liberation. I see you. I hear you. I feel you. And that is what I've been watching. I love it. This episode marks the departure of our amazing producer, Rachel Withers, the greatest producer of all. Aww. She is going to travel the world. Yes, she is she literally is. going to gl- to globe hop and thank it you will be for being a friend thank you so much for being a friend rachel withers we will always love you we'll never forget you godspeed <laughs> rachel withers uh and even though we're gonna miss her so much times infinity we would also like to warmly welcome with this episode Efa mcmahon hello Aoife. welcome to the pop tarts family Efa. We're so delighted that you've decided to join us. And thanks, as always, to our luscious audio engineer, Logan Del Fuego. (laughs) Muy caliente. (laughs) And to our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems. You cannot find Callie on Twitter. Don't try. You will fail. But you can email both of us. I'm at emilyrems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bus.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. We don't want to be in the shadows, like what we do in the shadows, like hundreds of year old vampires who are just lurking around Staten Island, not uh, engaging in world domination. We do want to engage in world domination. <laughs> we want to come out of the shadows, and we can only do that if you rate and review us on Apple yes. Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time, mwah. mwah.